Father, as we consider the Word of God, your voice, the voice of the Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts and lives, to show us the path that leads to life, to comfort us, Lord, to correct us, to exhort us, to instruct us, Lord, how we should live to please you, how we can live with no regrets and to um, enter into your presence, Lord, Um, boldly and with confidence because we have lived in obedience to your word. We thank you for all the good truths that you have here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We ask that you'd help us now in Christ's name. Amen. We moved around a lot as a kid growing up there in New England, as most of you know, but there is a place in my heart that I call home. It's 44 Brown Street in Methuen, Massachusetts. I have a picture of it. Yeah, that's my grandma's house. It's kind of a a portrait slash, we touched it up with some acrylics, but my grandma's house there, uh, my grandparents lived on the first, in the first flat. There's two flats there. And uh, with my aunt and my uncle on the bottom floor, Then on the top flat was another aunt and uncle and their kids, my two cousins. But more than that, it was the family gathering place. It was the quintessential grandma's house with every bit of the fond memories that you could ever think of. The food, fantastic, never ending, delicious. Uh, loud and almost cartoon-like characters that filled that house with just wonderful personalities larger than life. And the holidays, Christmas is unbelievable. Everybody trying to outgive everybody else. So loving, so kind, uh, a lot of laughing and a lot of loving. It was just a place brimming over with adventure, too. It was near a river, near an, a lake. And my aunt and uncle owned a little concession stand there. And we got to go in and get whatever we wanted in the summers when we went up for vacation. It was a really beautiful place. And every time I was heading to 44 Brown Street, it always felt like I was headed home. Eventually, as time rolls on, of course, my grandparents passed away and Uh, My aunts and uncles were getting older, and so they sold the place, and they moved to Florida, as a lot of older Bostonians tend to do. And you know, when I go back to New England, I'll pull up in front of that house, and I'll just sit, and I'll just think, and I'll remember all those people. But God has a way. God has a way of letting us know that our home, our true home, is nowhere on earth. Our true home is with him in heaven. And so God has a way of helping us realize that. And here in Second Corinthians chapter 5, thanks for that picture. Second Corinthians chapter 5, Paul is going to talk about heading home with the capital H, uh, not to a structure 
made by human hands. But to the place that Jesus said he went to prepare for us, he called it his father's house, where there are many King James Version mansions or rooms, a place. There is a home for you in the father's house. And uh, not only for you and for me, but whosoever believes in him, that's an incredible invitation. So last chapter, chapter four closed out. Paul had been encouraging us with this future hope in mind to have a heavenly perspective, to not just see the things that are visible, but to see beyond to eternal realities, uh, spiritual truths, heaven, the promises of God, the work of the Holy Spirit, the things that you cannot see unless you have eyes of faith. And so he says, with a heavenly perspective, you will fare better than just taking a look at the temporary things, the truest things, the most significant things, the most important things, the lasting things are things that we cannot see with our physical eyes. We must apprehend them with faith. And so Paul's been saying in our daily struggles, living in a fallen world with a fallen body that's subject to decay and death and troubles and despair, he says to set our eyes on things above where there's love and joy and comfort and security, a place called home. So this began a line of thinking last time that continues now in chapter five, as you'll see. And he's saying, don't be downhearted with the temporary nature of this life, the heartbreak, the troubles, the death that comes your way. Believers should not be discouraged with these things, but encouraged because, chapter 5, verse 1. We shouldn't be discouraged because now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, Because when we're clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan in our burden because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. That's a beautiful picture there. So let's talk about that. And note takers, you can say, we are headed home, number one. We have a home in heaven. Heaven. So we're talking about this dichotomy that life and death are at work in the same body, in the same life, that we have troubles and hardship and persecutions and death that face us, but all's well that ends well. Isn't that the case? I mean, we read the last chapter and this, this verse here, these verses here, because of Jesus... Everything's going to end very well for us. We have a heavenly home, and the Holy Spirit is going to make sure that we get there. And so, you know, he says, I want you to concentrate on and focus on these heavenly realities so that you're really, so that you will be, listen, so heavenly minded that you can actually be of some earthly good. You know, it's really true. If you're not heavenly minded, you'll be no earthly good. And so we, I get what the idiom's supposed to be warning you against. Uh, That's common sense. 
But actually, the reverse is true. We need to be heavenly minded so that we can be earthly good. And that's what really Paul's getting at here. So let's dive in here with verse one and following. He's going to use a metaphor because guess what? Paul is a tent maker by trade. And so along with being supported by some of the churches, mostly at Philippi, um, he was he supported himself by tent making, and so sometimes we call pastors who work side jobs tent makers uh, after this whole idea. But that was his trade. Uh, Acts chapter eighteen, you see Paul applying um, that trade, and so he compares the body that we live in to a tent. <laughs> and so tents, yeah, tents. Well, they're as good of a quality of a tent that you can get, I mean, they're still temporary. They're still not the permanent deal. They're vulnerable. And you know, there, some tents are really nice. I stayed, the nicest tent I ever stayed in was in Africa on a safari. And it was a wonderful tent. But guess what? At night, you're out in the jungle. You're not in like a uh, marine world. <laughs> you're like in their territory, right? And you can hear them everywhere. And I'm just like feeling the walls. Like, this, what is this made out of, you know? If a lion wanted to get in there, there'd be no problem. Because why? It's a tent. It's fragile. It has its limitations. And he says, listen, we live in a tent right now. Your body, your spirit is housed in something that he's going to refer to as this temporary, vulnerable, weak-sauced tent, all right? Now, he says, if that tent is destroyed, the word means dissolved, or it's actually used as an idiom to when you strike down a tent. When you strike camp and pack up your tent, that's what the word can be used for. So he's saying, uh, when you die... It's kind of like pulling up the tent stakes, uh, taking the tent down, packing it up, putting the tent away, and immediately, immediately, we move into another dwelling, uh, not made by, hum by um, human hands, but provided by God. And Philippians chapter 3 says it's a, t it's a dwelling, it's a building, it's a King James Version mansion. It's, it's a, but he's really talking not just about heaven and the place God has prepared, but in this case, he's talking about the body, the building that God has prepared for you. He's talking about your actual spiritual body perfected and resurrected to be a glorious body like his. Philippians chapter three and verse 21, a glorious body like the resurrected God the son, you share that glorious kind of body. So he's saying immediately there, and the reason I know and we know that he's talked the body here, that uh, the building I should say is the body that God has for us, is, is that Jesus used a similar metaphor when he said, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. And then John says, by the way, he was talking about his body. 
So we, we, we see what we're talking about here is that there's a body in store for you that God has prepared that is fitted for eternal life that will never grow old and will not be vulnerable and is not temporary in any shape, way, or form. And I like what he says here. We know. That's where all this confidence comes from. This is mature Christians. They have a, a knowing because they have a faith that apprehends the promises of God as truth. He doesn't say, you, you know, we hope or we're thinking or we can surmise or apparently. He says, we who have the Holy Spirit and the word of God and a little bit of faith, no bigger than a mustard seed. We know we know we have this body now. It's ours, a building from God, the eternal house. That's what he's talking about, a resurrected, perfect body. And uh, that's pretty exciting stuff. Paul says if you have a physical body in 1 Corinthians 15, you have a spiritual body. So since he's uh, had a couple close calls with death and he's told the Corinthians about this, it's kind of on his mind. And he says, when it's time to strike camp, the tent comes down, the building, eternal, permanent, glorious, comes up. And, and you know, I have two pictures here. <clears throat> I got a picture of a tent. <laughs> yes, yes. Oh, you just wait, you young whippersnappers over there. You think, what kind of tent is that? I'll tell you what kind of tent that is. That's the kind of tent that's waiting for you when you're 60, 70, 80. Oh, you think you're fine now. Mm. Don't get me started. I'm not that old. But I'm old enough to know this is coming. He says it's the body is sown in dishonor. And it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness and it's raised in power. First Corinthians chapter 15. It's raised in power, folks. He says, we have a building. Here, next slide's fine. We have a building that hands didn't even make. And we look at that and go, whoa, I'd like to live there. And some of you do. And we're so happy for you. It's going to be a fun night. I feel it. But, you know, that's the best I can do to say, wow. And God goes, that's what you guys can do. No eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor has it entered into the mind of man the things God has prepared for those who love him. First Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. He says, I could do abundantly more than you can ask or think. Ask or think as high as you can go. I can go way higher than that. And so we look at that and go, whoa, I can only imagine. He goes, yeah, no, you can't. That's the problem. <laughs> Colors you've never seen. Shapes you can't imagine. A dynamic that would blow your mind. Because your mind is limited your mind is limited. And so he says, think about those things. You'll get cheered up. Verses two through four, Paul's going to mix his metaphors now. And he says, okay, it's like striking a tent when you die or when you see him. Paul's always going back and forth. Is he going to appear and come to us 
Or am I going to strike the tent and go to him? It doesn't matter because either every, that second, you're out of the tent, you're changed, the trumpet has sounded, and you're in a new building. You're in a new building. A few people are getting excited. They're very good here. All right, it's the older tents that are getting excited. (laughs) Just saying. (laughs) So here we go. Um, Here's what he's saying. He's saying, the worst thing that can happen to me or to you, the worst thing is you get to move into your mansion. So if you start thinking about what's the worst thing that could happen to me? You know, we talk about the streets of gold and the angelic beings and the crystal sea and the throne of God. The the eternal pleasures at his right hand. And then when it comes time to go, we fall apart. Nobody wants to go. You know, wait, 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 we can't have it both ways. He says, listen, true faith anticipates and longs for heaven. And they get to heaven, one of two things has to happen. He comes to us or you go to him. Either way, your life here is done, right? But how many prefer for him to come to us? <laughs> yeah, all the hands, just if you're listening, all the hands have raised skyward. All right, so we've, we're gone to the metaphor of putting on new clothes here, verses 2, 3, and 4. He's saying, uh, it's unpleasant right now. He's saying, for a season in this tent that's vulnerable to all kinds of things, uh, we groan. And he mentions that twice. And he says, we're frustrated. We feel the limitations, the incompleteness. We know in our hearts that there's a person inside us that isn't properly uh, reflected or ministered to by this body. We understand that. He's put that in our hearts. We know this is marred. This is incomplete. And so we groan. He says, in this tent now, we, we know that there's something better and we long for that. And there's a groaning. Yes, the dichotomy. We have joy. We have the Holy Spirit. We enjoy life. We don't walk around groaning all day. But on the back burner of our hearts, there's a little bit of moaning and groaning, especially in seasons of life when the tent is doing its thing. And we wish to, I mean, the thoughts of a a fallen body. The thoughts are scattered. Our passions run wild. Our emotions are up and down. Our wills are stubborn. The things that I know I shouldn't do, I want to do. And the things that uh, I shouldn't be doing, I end up doing. He says, who will save me from this tent of death? He says, thankfully, God has a plan. Our bodies are breaking down. We live in a fallen world and we moan and we groan. We have burdens, your text says, uh, and, and because we understand that something better is coming. And so we don't want to be, <clears throat> he says, you, you will not be, you will be clothed. You will be not found Unclothed. In other words, the life is continuous. 
it's not going to, there's not going to be any interlude where you're like, <gasps> you know, he's just going to wrap us up in white, eternal garments of white linen, which stand for moral purity and perfection. <clears throat> I like what Spurgeon said, the righteous are put into their graves all weary and worn, but they will not rise the same. <clears throat> they go there with the furrowed brow, the hollowed cheek, the wrinkled skin. They shall wake up in beauty and in glory, fully clothed in the garments that God has prepared uh, for us. Verses 5 through 10. Now it's God who made us for this very purpose and has given us the spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what, what's to come. Verse 6. Therefore, we're always confident and know that as long as we're at home in the body, in the tent, we're away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. We're confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and be at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. This is a good paragraph. Let's talk about it. So our future hope check. Now, um, point two, our future hope. Since we have this future hope, this destiny, this home, we have this present confidence. We have a win-win situation. You have a win-win situation, Christian. And the thing we most dread is actually to be preferred to move us into the eternal, completed, made whole, experiencing life with God in a world that's renewed as well. And so, you know... God himself has prepared us for this, verse 5, as a guarantee he's given us the Holy Spirit. So it's as if Paul here in your text is anticipating some questions here <clears throat> uh, because he's exhibiting such bold confidence, right? And he's calling you and to me to that kind of confidence as well. So he's anticipating your thinking, well, how do we know for sure all these things? And he's saying, well, that's an easy answer. You've got the Holy Spirit. He's already started the process of that new home, right? You already have the shovel has already dug into your soul. The foundation, which is Christ Jesus, has already been poured and laid inside your heart and up from your spirit and soul is flowing this everlasting kind of life. And so he's saying, <clears throat> the reason you know you're going to access that home, you're going to be there, is because it's already started. He's already raised you from the dead of your sins and your transgressions. He's made you alive. He's united you to Christ. And the work has started. Unless you don't see that work, then you should be depressed because there's no Holy Spirit, there's no deposit, there's no guarantee 
There's no anything unless you see some moral transformation that, the, that you know the Holy Spirit has come on board when you opened your heart to him. If anybody is in Christ, they're new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. The Holy Spirit comes in. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says, don't you realize that the unrighteous, that those who do uh, will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then he says, sexually immoral people, adulterers, slanderers, drunkards, idol worshipers. When you live that day to day to day to day, he says, that's a sign that you will not be going to heaven. You will not inherit eternal life. Then he says, and that's what some of you were, but you were washed. You were sanctified. That means set apart. You were justified. That means forgiven, just as if you've never sinned. By what? By, by the spirit of our God in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the very work that God has started in you, that you see some changes, is the guarantee, the deposit of what the work that he has promised that he who started the good work in you will carry it on to completion until that day. That's a promise from God. So he says, so we know God made us for this very purpose and he's put the spirit in our hearts. You know what I love about this? That word deposit, it's the same word that they would use as an engagement ring. All right, so the Holy Spirit is saying that the Lord has pledged his love to the church and he's going to come for that church and he's going to have a wedding supper, a marriage. It's a, it's a metaphor of saying you are so loved like a husband loves a wife and you are going to be one with the Lord as a husband and wife are one. How safe and secure is that? To have Christ as the husband to the church. This is what he's saying. And he's, you're engaged. And when God says you're engaged, that engagement, he's not going to leave anybody at the altar. He is not. He, he is God. He cannot lie. He will fulfill and bring to pass that which he has promised. Therefore, he says we're confident uh, either one or two, you have two options. I love this. He says in verse six, so we are always confident, even though we know that as long as we're in the tent, we're not at home with the Lord. So he's saying, let's talk about two different scenarios. You're, because believers who are alive are at home in the tent, in the body, but absent from the Lord. And that's why verse seven says, and that's why you have to walk by faith. So if you're at home in the body, you're not in heaven. Now, of course, we have the Lord, but we don't see him with our eyes. We, we're not there. We're not completed. So we're away from him in that sense. And that's why verse 7 says, and therefore, if you're in the body and away from the Lord, you have to walk by faith. That's the way you access him when you're away from him in the sense of being in your corporal body, right? But he says, when you're away from the body and at home with the Lord, you don't need faith anymore because you'll see him. 
Jeremiah says, and, and they will not need to teach their neighbor. Hey, neighbor, do you know the Lord? You won't have to say that to your neighbor. He says, for everyone from the least to the greatest will know me, says the Lord. You know what this verse says to me? I'm going to be out of a job. <laughs> I am out of a job. What am I going to do? You guys, oh, just put your mind in on the Lord. Oh, there he is. <laughs> I know. He's like, I got this, Ross. I can tell him myself, you know. I've got other stuff to do up there, and so do you. And uh, we're going to talk about that stuff coming up here. And so... I like it. So on the other hand, he says, yes, we're fully confident, verse 8, that we would rather be away from these earthly bodies so that we could be at home uh, with the Lord. I really like that. Do you really prefer? Would you really prefer? Yeah. I mean, I mean, yes, listen, let's be real. God has put a desire in all of our hearts to hang around here. We, we have a very strong will to live, and that's a good thing. And, and when we're younger, we want to live it out, right? But there should be a side of all of us who love the Lord that says, hey, if he appeared tonight, you know, you remember when you were engaged to get married and you were filled with the Holy Spirit, you're like, oh, Lord, please don't come until the honeymoon. <laughs> You know, or, or we've got this thing coming and we're like, oh, Lord, the Lord's going to come the day before, you know, whatever <laughs> happens, you know. And so, uh, yeah, we, you know, that's tent life right there. That's, that's tent life is like we would prefer another day here in the tent than walking around in the mansion, you know, riding around in some kind of rambler. Instead of driving a Tesla, you know. Oh, Lord, I just love my Rambler. Yeah. Or your Pinto. Or your, what was the other one with the best smashed in back? It was kind of a weird car. A Gremlin. Is that a real name of a car? It just sounds like a little monster now. A Gremlin. You're right. I'm having a flashback. The Lord's like, get out of the gremlin, folks. Let me help you. We're, oh, we love our gremlin. Okay. I told you it's going to be fun, didn't I? Oh, this is great. Verse 9. Interesting. Listen to what he says. Either case. He says, so whether we're here in the body or away from the Lord, our goal is to please him. What? What, is, what does that mean? He's saying, listen to him. I love Paul. He says, since we'll be serving God in heaven and doing his will and pleasing him, that's our God-appointed destiny. It's a future reality that's closing in on all of us. Shouldn't we be getting busy with the program now? That's what he's saying. So he's saying, listen, we're talking about heaven. We're going to heaven. Jesus is coming soon, right? And what do we do there? All we do is his will and please him. So he's like, doesn't it make sense that you would be like totally serving him and trying to please him now? So whether we're there doing what we're going to do forever pleasing him, shouldn't we be 
making that our goal here as well now. Maybe that's too lofty for you to catch tonight, but <laughs> I, I thought it was good. So this talk about seeing heaven has brought verse 10, a very uh, sobering thought indeed. So here's what he's saying. <clears throat> We're going to heaven. Think about it. No more mourning, no more crying, no more sorrow, no more pain. Relief from all earthly struggles. Wow, think about it. Life-giving river that flows from the throne. Exotic fruit trees lining the riverbanks. Streets of shimmering gold. Breathtaking angelic beings. Walls made of gemstones. Sapphires, emeralds, and topaz. Gates of pearl, crystal seas. Reunited with our saved loved ones in our perfected bodies. Oh, yes. And judgment day. For Christians. To be evaluated, us Christians, for deeds done in the body, whether good or bad. Yeah, that's, that's what I'm talking about right there. That quiet feeling. Heaven is a beautiful place filled with glory and grace. I'm going to see my fa Savior's face. Roro. <laughs> a little bit. A little bit. So listen. For we must all stand, all of us Christians, must stand before Christ to be judged. We will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil we've done in the body. So speaking of our deeds and the motives behind the deeds. Now, when we get saved, it has nothing to do with our deeds, good or bad. Jesus died for us. We receive him. Salvation is a free gift of God. It's not by works, lest any man boast. And there's therefore no condemnation in Christ. So the judgment that Christians face is a judgment that theologians call the bema seat for the word um, judgment seat is the Greek word bema. And it just means raised platform where the Olympia, where the Olympic athletes were awarded, rewarded, and also where the Roman officials would judge. It's a raised platform. So he says, Christ has one of those four believers, and we will stand before it, each one to give an account of himself before God. Romans chapter 14, parallel verse. That we stand there. Now, that judgment, not one believer who is judged will, will be condemned, for there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. It's either you are rewarded or you forfeit reward. Or a little bit of both. I think it's a little bit of both that goes on there. Let me explain this to you in a beautiful scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 15. By the grace of grace, God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds. He's talking about his Christian life and your Christian life. For no one can lay any other found any other than the, the any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. 
If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work, it's a judgment of your works, will be shown for what it is. Because the day, the second coming, part of the, the going home celebrations will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, now a metaphor, we get what you're saying, he will receive his reward. If it's burned up, he'll suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, but only as escaping through the flames. I often describe it as to you this way, crashing on the runways of heaven. And, you know, the angels pull you out of the burning plane and you're on fire and they're hosing you down. You know, it's like, well, welcome, you made it. But not much to show for it. There are Christians who legitimately get saved and fall away and waste their lives. And you think they're going to get what everybody else gets? Of course not. They get eternal life. They're in heaven. They're going to get a body built without human hands and all of that. The love of Christ, everything. Nobody's going to be living in any ghetto in heaven. and Nobody's going to be walking around going, I should have tried harder. Nobody's going to need any depressants in heaven. But maybe that's why he has to wipe away some of our tears. Because for the moment we realize, wow. So what does it mean to build with wood, hay, and stubble? Well, various sins, stupid decisions, hurtful behaviors, lost opportunities, squandered resources, mismanaged time and money and gifts, disingenuous motives, the all-seeing, all-knowing, all-loving eye of God and it's either going to survive, like he says, um, gold, silver, or costly stones, good stewardship, obedience, small and large, good deeds, every last one of them, done from a good heart for the right motives, abstaining, cross-bearing, closing your mouth when you wanted to talk so bad. But you didn't. He says, I got something for you for that. You think it's going to go down to a cup of water in his, in his name? He said, you won't lose your reward. Because God wants us to have a lot of reward. So he's lowered the bar down to a cup of cold water in his name. In other words, a compliment. A A prayer. Something that you refreshed somebody, a couple of you, you just kind of lighten their load just a little bit. Chiching. He's got it. It was a precious gem to him, and you're going to hear about it. So there's lots of ways to build, build with gold, silver, and costly stones. Now, Unbelievers, that's a great white throne. That's at the end of the millennial kingdom. They are resurrected from a place called Hades. <clears throat> and every evil dead being from Cain all the way to the end of the millennial kingdom will rise before a great white throne and they will be judged and sentenced. 
we are evaluated and rewarded or forfeited a reward. But that's the worst that can happen to the Christian. What's the reward? It's hard to say. It seems like there's greater responsibility and greater honor in the kingdom that comes for faithful service. Because it's required one thing of a steward is that they be found uh, faithful. <clears throat> so Paul's saying, shouldn't this motivate us? So he's saying, hey, we're going to heaven. We're going to heaven. We're going to heaven. And he goes, and we're going to be accountable to him. So it's not just excitement. It's excitement channeled to live a God-pleasing life. Let's finish up <clears throat> before I lose my voice. All right, here we go, 11 through 16. We'll just, uh, 15, we'll stop there for tonight. <clears throat> Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men what it is, what, what, <laughs> what it is. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it's also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but we're giving you <clears throat> an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than in what is in the heart. Verse 13, if we're out of our mind as they say we are, it is for the sake of God. And if we're in our right mind, it's for you. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So let's talk about this. I look forward to clearing up um, verses that are hard to understand, like a couple of them in here tonight. So the task at hand is point number three, the task at hand. So the task at hand is going to be reconciling lost souls back to God who created them and loved them and has given us this ministry of reconciliation. <clears throat> Excuse me. So the first thing is the fear of the Lord. He says, of course, it's the beginning of wisdom. It's the middle of wisdom and it's the end of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is knowing that we're going to get to heaven and see him. And he's going to say, hey, let's talk about your life. Let's talk about your finances. Let's talk about your words. Let's talk about your marriage. Let's talk. He says, the fear of the Lord prompts us to our ministry. And he says, uh, right now he's talking about persuading men. But this fear of the Lord, this reverential awe, you know, this, yes, we have joy and peace and the love of God. And he invites us to rest. Uh, but... There is a sanctified fear and respect of God. I mean, come on. In Exodus 33, he says, no one can see me and live through that experience. Can you imagine standing before God? That's going to be an amazing thing. And so if we didn't have new bodies, we'd never be able to survive the sight because we're going to see him as he is. First John chapter 3. The fear of the Lord. I, I love this little thing from the lion and the witch in the wardrobe where uh, <clears throat> Lucy finds out that Aslan is not a man. 
but a lion. So uh, they're talking back and forth, Mr. Beaver and Susan. Susan, yeah, Susan. <clears throat> he says, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? Sorry. I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion, Mr. Beaver says. Safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. But he's good. Yeah, my professor, Norm Arneson, he's with the Lord. He's got his body. He's driving around with a Tesla up there. But <clears throat> Norm Arneson, he used to say, he's daddy, but he's not daddy-o. Uh, that went over better about 40 years ago. <laughs> so I started trying to think of a more contemporary thing, you know. He's Papa God, but maybe he's not Pops or whatever. But, but I like to be called Pops, so I don't know about that. So the fear of the Lord is what drives us to persuade. So persuade what? Persuade who? Well, first of all, to persuade the truth of the gospel and the truth concerning himself. Now we're back to his newcomer, wannabe poser teachers there in Corinth who have come in and tried to divide the Corinthians away from their founding pastor with all their false accusations. And so he's trying to persuade them, and he's been doing a lot of that. And he's talking to the Corinthians who have been seduced away from him by their unjust criticism. So he says there in verse 11, God sees our hearts. We're trying to persuade you. He knows we're sincere, we're legit, our motives are straight up, that we have sound credentials, our conduct is sound. And in verse 11, and I wish you knew it too, God knows. And then he says, whoopsies, verse 12, does it seem like I'm, I'm ringing my own bell again? I'm commending myself or uh, commending ourselves again. Actually, no, I'm not tooting my own horn. I have to give you guys ammunition. I have to defend myself and persuade you, no, we're not doing this. Actually, we're doing that. And give you some ammunition to take pride in us like you should have done without me having to do it. To take pride in us to answer those clowns back. And so he's saying, you know, it sounds like I'm talking a lot about myself. Oh, we're actually honest men. And we love you guys. And we're compelled by, by God's love for you. Does it sound like we're commending ourselves? I'm not. I wish I didn't have to be talking like this. I could be teaching you about something about the Lord. But instead, you've let these guys come in and, and detract you away. And so I'm just giving you, he says in verse 12 there, something to answer them so you could take pride in us. And then there in verse 12, he says, I want you guys to have something to answer these guys who always focus on the outward appearance rather than the heart. And in other words, he's saying, these imposters who have come into Corinth who are talking bad about the Apostle Paul, he characterizes them this way. They're guys who always look on the outward. You know, look at our numbers, look at our building, look at my degrees. And, and they'd come in with genealogies and letters saying, look at who we're related to. They're Jewish, 
So they're coming to Corinth to a bunch of Gentiles and saying, we're related to Moses. Look at our genealogies. And they'd stretch out these long scrolls and show all the begats, right? Look at, my name is here. Look at this. And Paul's saying, you know, they're always looking to signs and wonders and things like that instead of character, instead of the fruit of the Holy Spirit, instead of holiness, instead of love and genuine faith. You know, uh, like when Samuel went to anoint King David, only the Lord didn't tell him which one was King David. He said, I want you to go figure it out. So he goes to the house and <clears throat> what's David's father's name? Jesse. And he's got like seven sons, right? And uh, so he says, one of your kids is going to be king. And he says, parade him by me and I'll tell you which one. And so they're all walking by and they're all good looking guys, but one is tall and more handsome than any of them. And Samuel thinks in his heart, oh man, <laughs> if that's not the kid, that, that's got to be him. He's so handsome and he's so big and strong. That's the guy. And the Lord says, <laughs> the Lord says, dude, I don't look at what you guys look at. Like, oh, look at him. He's so tall and wonderful and beautiful. No, I look at the heart. I've rejected him. And so he's like, is this all the sins you got? And he goes, oh, yeah, there's another one. He's out with the sheep. Well, I'm not sitting down to dinner until you go get him, you know, because he overlooked the one that God said, I can look into his heart and see that he's devoted to me already. And he's just a young teenager. So yeah, these opponents were guys like that, so impressed with everything on the outside. And then he answers this so-called uh, crazy behavior. They used to say, they were saying of him, he's extreme. He's the Apostle Paul. All he talks about is Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Uh, he's just a fanatic. He's always in trouble. He's always in jail because he's crazy. That's what they said. And look, he has to defend himself. And he says, are we out of our mind? Here's what he says. Well, you know what? If I'm a fanatic, if I'm overdramatic or extreme, to this charge, he replies, that is for God to judge. You know, people who aren't 100% dedicated to the Lord, they're very intimidated by people who are, and they like to pick them apart because they feel insecure about that person, so they have to kind of, you know, denigrate them a little bit, disparage them a little bit to feel better about their own level of mediocrity serving the Lord. That's how it goes. Uh, we got a little bit of that at Bible college when I first became a Christian. I was a little bit for Jesus. You know, I was a very zealous uh, person. And some people, um, me and my friend had, had, had heard somebody calling us a fanatic. And so I'll never forget, I'm sitting with my friend in Bible college. My friend says, uh, you know, I'm kind of afraid that I'm just kind of losing my life in this whole gospel thing. I'm just like... I'm, I'm like in the deep end. I'm like, you know, I'm just kind of, you know, 
are we being fanatics? Are we? I just kind of feel like I'm losing interest in other things and I just want to talk about the Lord. And I said, you know, you're right. I can just hear Jesus saying, what were you guys thinking? Always turning the conversation to me, constantly wanting to serve me to encourage others. I know what you're saying. You know, I can just hear Jesus saying, you know, always looking for an opportunity to share the gospel. What was your problem, you guys? You guys were reading your Bible too much. You prayed too hard. You gave too much in the offering. You know, way too holy. I don't think so. I don't think so. Now, there's obnoxious and neurotic. We get that. But Paul loved the Lord to make the gospel attractive to outsiders. He was wise in how he conducted himself, and everything was done decently and in order. So he had 100% love for God, and he was wise about social cues. He wasn't neurotic, you know. It's not always zealous to bring Jesus up every three seconds. Amen. I think you get it. All right, so we're done. 14 and 15. Let me paraphrase this because um, he says, speaking of being crazy and extreme and fanatical, I'll tell you why. You ought to be extremely fanatical as well. Here's what it says. He says, it's the love of Jesus that drives us. Listen to this. He died, verses 14 and 15, paraphrase. He died for us all. So what else matters? If, he died, if God died for all of us, then our lives are all over. He laid down his life for us, so shouldn't we lay down our life for him? Our lives must now be 100% about him. So here's what he's saying. If Christ is God and God shed his blood and died for you, then nothing else matters and your life is over because it belongs to God who bought you with his blood and now, in essence, you've died and you belong to him. And the life you now live, you live by faith in the son of God who, who loved you and gave himself up for you. That's all that's saying. In Colossians chapter 3, he says the same thing. Set your mind on things above, for you have died. And your, Christ, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. In other words, when you're united to the death of Christ, your life, what, what is this with tacking God on? As like you're living your life and you got God tacked on to bless the life that you're living. He says, no, 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 you have died because he died for you. You've been united to his death. You don't have a life. You do not have a life unless it's raised up in him and it's his life in you. What does he want you to be? What does he want you to do? What does he want you to think? So he says, yes, I am crazy. I am crazy and so should you be because you're dead. You don't have a life because he died for you and you're united. If you're saying you're a Christian, you're united to his death. You don't have a life except what he's raised up in you and gifted you and given you to enjoy, to minister, to serve gifts and all abilities, all for him. 
and giving you all things to enjoy as well. But you have to have the wisdom to sort of see that you're raised up for his purposes and your life is not your own. Your life belongs to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that there's a lot of truth in these verses and a lot of truth that sets our hearts free that this is not our own life to do with what we please. That gets us into a whole bunch of trouble, but it's your life in us. We belong to you to do your will. And that does sound fanatical to people when it's just all about what you want. God, we've lost ourselves to find ourselves in you. We thank you, God. In Christ's name, amen. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 6.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.